is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up on this week's edition of Food Friday, we sift through the thousands of skillets on the market to decide which one's the right one for you. First, President Biden announced last week that he would name a point person in the education department to address the rise in school book bans. In 2022, attempted book bans at schools and public libraries reached an all-time high since the American Library Association started recording book bans 20 years ago. That continues the upward recent trend. According to an analysis by the group Penn America, about 40% of the banned books included LGBTQ characters and themes. About 40% featured characters of color. A handful of states have passed laws making it easier to challenge books, while Illinois recently passed a bill limiting book removals. Want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Have books been challenged in your school district, your local library? Have you led a challenge or asked for something to be reshelved elsewhere? What are your thoughts on schools keeping certain books off the shelves? Where should lines be drawn? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Louise Robbins is an emeritus professor of library and information studies at UW-Madison and the author of The Dismissal of Miss Ruth Brown, Civil Rights, Censorship, and the American Library. Louise, welcome to Central Time. Thanks so much, Rob. Before we get into this new uh, point person in the education department, I just want to get your thoughts as someone who's observed these issues uh, and how they've played out over time. What are your thoughts on this last couple of years we've seen these this big increase in challenges and removals of books? Well, it's very distressing. We've had challenges to books as long as there have been libraries, I suppose, but the intellectual freedom position of librarianship has evolved in an effort to make it possible for people to get a variety of opinions on different on different uh, subjects to keep allow people to learn as much as they can. So having more censorship Having more book bans makes it harder for people to gain new perspectives or even to support their own perspectives. Um, and I, historically, uh, things have moved much more slowly because there have they've communicated. People have communicated by letter or by telephone, not by internet. So the, the uh, censorship hasn't gained steam the way it has in the last couple of years when we've been so extremely polarized. Part of the goal of this new uh, position in the education department would be to explain to schools in particular that removing books could infringe on students' uh, federal civil rights. Uh, What are your thoughts on the possibilities of a role like this in the federal government? Well, it'll be a first, but there have been supports for, for librarians in the past, but in this case, I think the having the weight of the Department of Education of the federal government to inform people is very helpful because it gives it gives heft and gives authority to that to that uh, understanding. In a school in particular, uh, parents might have a concern that uh, they don't want uh, sexual material, for example, or graphic descriptions of sexual material in a school. Uh, I mean, do we have a good process for deciding, hey, this book might be okay at a high school, but isn't okay at an elementary school, for example? There, There are processes for determining what should go into libraries. Librarians have a very elaborate process of reading reviews, reading the books 
listening to others, making choices based on awards, reviews, and so on, and then putting them in the area they think is most helpful to students. I think there's also a, a process for removing books if that's or challenging them. There, the uh, challenger should have read the book in its entirety to be able to identify what portions of it are offensive to that person to make an argument for or against the book and then to submit that to the librarian who ha normally has a, a committee set up to help review such things so that it can go through a process of course when one person find what one person finds offensive may not be offensive to someone else so imposing the will of one individual on an entire school library would not be a very good idea. Might the answer to a particular book being challenged look different uh, from one community to another community? Does that process say, you know, our town here doesn't uh, think this is appropriate for kids of this age, another community might come up with something different? And, and I know maybe that's okay. It could be. I think that the the issue is okay, we don't have very many people of color in this community, so we shouldn't have any books about people of color. Well, in the great wide world, you're going to run into people of color. You need to know something about other people, whether you have them in your community at this moment or not. So I think it's dangerous to say, well, we're a very uh, small kind of insular community, so we don't want to know about the world outside of us. I think that it would be best, of, of course, if people could be exposed to a wide variety of viewpoints. But yes, librarians try to take into consideration their communities and what the community wants and needs. We're talking to Louise Robbins, Emeritus Professor of Library and Information Studies at UW-Madison, looking at book bans, book challenges and removals in schools and libraries. The White House says they're going to have a new point person in the Education Department to work on that issue. And you can join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions, uh, your thoughts on the issue, maybe your experiences in your own community. 800-642-1234 is the number to call. Let's bring on a caller. Dennis is with us in Two Rivers. Dennis, hi. Hi. I was just uh, thinking about the Scopes Monkey Trial. That was uh, had something to do with teaching about... Uh, evolution in high school mm -hmm. and it's a religious thing and for public schools there should be a there should be a separation of church and state it, parochial schools yeah if they want to ban things well it's up to them but in, as far as the religion well you need to be careful whose religion you you want to ban because it seems like people want to ban everybody else's except theirs Dennis, thanks for the call, Louise. Uh, religious basis for challenging books. How does that play out in practice? Well, that's. I think I agree with Dennis. I think it's very dangerous to say, my religion's okay, but yours isn't. Um, and I think this is going to have uh, ramifications across the board as we begin to, as we more and more fund, use federal funds or local funds to fund parochial or private schools, there should be some strings attached to that funding to make sure that people who whose religion is not identical to that of the sponsor um, has have some rights in terms of collections as well. 
So I would, um, I think Dennis is right. We need to be careful whose religion or whether we're going to put restrictions on relig on religious materials. Thanks for that call, Dennis, at 800-642-1234. Louise, as I mentioned at the outset, about 40% of the books banned, this is according to Pan America, uh, from 2021 to 2022, featured uh, LGBTQ plus themes and or characters. Uh, now, there, there might be parents uh, who, who make these challenges who say, uh, you know what, I don't want my kid exposed to uh, what I consider, uh, the, the parent might say, a, a lifestyle I don't approve of that doesn't match my religious principles. How would you hope uh, schools and libraries deal with a, a complaint from that perspective? I think that there is a system that's already in place where libraries can handle that. A parent can make clear to the librarian on some kind of form, if, if it needs to be formal, and it probably does, that my child is not to check out books about X, Y, and Z. Um, and the librarian can easily enough steer that child away from those books without limiting other children to the to books, uh, to selecting books that are, that they, I mixed that sentence up, didn't I? Without limiting other children. So um, I think that the issue is when you make a complaint, you need to say, I don't want my child doing this, but you don't necessarily have the right to tell another parent what his or her child can do. I think it's very certainly clear that you can limit what your own child does. Let's go back to our callers now. Ryan is with us in Glendale. Ryan, hi. Yes, hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I would describe myself as very pro-First Amendment, but I do worry about if we are going to uh, prohibit uh, or, or limit the authority of librarians in one area, that means that we're compelling the authority of librarians in other areas. Uh, and it seems like it could very easily lead to compelled speech. Um, especially if there's a government entity in charge like this proposed official at the Department of Education to say that you must carry these books or you must promote these ideas. Ryan, thanks I'm, for the call. Uh, Louise, go ahead. Well, I'm not sure exactly what, I, what uh, Ryan means. Ryan, when you say compelled speech, you mean that, that people are going to be forced to collect certain materials? Well, what I mean is if you say that the community has a very limited say in what's available, then it seems to me that that means that the government is then saying this material must be available whether the community wants it or not. And that, to me, seems to be a form of compelled speech. Well, I think, I think that is a potential danger. I don't foresee it happening because I think what's, what the, so far as I've been able to understand thus far, the position of the government is we're going to tell them what the, what the law says, what the law has said so far about the rights of students to access library materials. We're not going to tell you that you have to stock X, Y, and Z books in your library, but to enable librarians to have a backup if they need some defense. Um, I, when, as an example, in the past, one of the most, the strangest stories that I've come across is that in the 
1958, I think it was, a children's book, Rabbit's Wedding, which you may have heard of, has a picture on the cover of a rat, black rabbit and a white rabbit. A librarian, the state librarian in Alabama almost lost her job because the, some legislators said that this was promoting interracial marriage. I doubt Garth Williams, the illustrator, ever thought about that when he did his book. But these kinds of, a person like this librarian needed to know that she had the right to fight for that book to be on the shelves. So it's it's just um, giving the person the uh, librarian some support and backup, and letting them know what the law actually is and what the the, the uh, best practice in the profession is. There are lots of people out there who are have little libraries that don't have much support in terms of professional guidance, and this would be useful to those people if they need it. Brian, thanks for calling in. We're talking about school and library book bans with Louise Robbins, Emeritus Professor of Library and Information Studies at UW-Madison. You can join in at 800-642-1234. When do you think uh, a book should be removed from a library or a school library? If ever, have you participated on either part of a book challenge at a library? And what are your thoughts on this uh, big jump in the number of books being challenged or removed from libraries? changes in state uh, laws in both directions, making it easier or harder to remove books. Call it at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation about President Biden's appointment of a book ban response coordinator at the U.S. Education Department. Louise Robbins is with us, Emeritus Professor of Library and Information Studies at UW-Madison. You can join in at 800-642-1234. There's been a big jump over the last couple of years in the number of books, the number of titles being challenged at school libraries and other libraries and book removals as well. Some states making it easier to take books off the shelves. Some, like Illinois, passing laws to make it more difficult. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Back to your calls. Allie is with us in New Richmond. Allie, hello. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. What did you want to bring up, Allie? Uh, so I am curious. Access to books and freedom of information, is that a freedom of speech? And then I'm also curious if the books are on the shelves and you don't like it, just don't read it. And we're in an age of you can get your hands on any books that you want. So even if they're banned, people will have access to them somewhere. Allie, thanks for the call, Louisa. Allie, first of all, asking, uh, you know, how much does the First Amendment play into these issues? The First Amendment plays into these issues a great deal. Freedom of speech also in implies a freedom to receive speech. If there's nobody to listen, there's no, not much point of speaking. So this, this is the two sides of the same coin, freedom of speech and freedom of the press kind of go hand in hand. Uh, freedom to receive information is crucial. Um, and I think that Allie has a point that things do get, word does get out if, um, if a book is banned, someone 
in some cases, it makes a book even more attractive. In fact, historically, the label banned in Boston was sought after by some authors in the, in the 20th century and the late 19th century, but especially the early 20th century, because they felt that, and they did, it did increase the book sales tremendously. So if a book is controversial these days, chances are it will be, it will be uh, discovered and read by, by young people. In fact, I was talking with friends of my, of my age uh, the other day and everyone could remember passing around an old copy of Peyton Place because with the parts underlined, we didn't read the whole book. We just were looking for the naughty parts, right? <laughs> but, and I think a lot of kids do that. It would be much better for them to have and the opportunity to read a book under the guidance of a librarian or a teacher or a parent than to be passing books around like that. Thanks for the call, Allie. That point from Allie about access, though, I've seen it kind of flipped around uh, on the other side. Well, okay, if we've taken it off the shelf in the school library or the library, no problem. If a parent really wants to have this book for their kid, uh, they can find it probably uh, online. They can order it. So the harm of removing it isn't so great. What do you think of that, Louise? Well, I think that the harm varies. Libraries are especially designed to serve everyone. So the, those people who don't have access to large uh, resources uh, to purchase things are much more likely to gain access to information, to good reading, to the internet, to online resources through a public library. There, if you go into the library most days, you can find people using the computer to, for job applications or to do research on what skills they need to get a particular job. There are all kinds of things that libraries are used for. They are used to develop people's reading skills and their, their information literacy skills, to create community. Um, many, many, many roles that the library has these days. So, uh, and books, access to books is one big important one, but in some ways is only only one part of the role of libraries, but it's most important for those who don't have inexhaustible resources to order online or to search, spend all the time looking in news bookstores. Let's bring on another caller now. Jerry is with us in La Crosse. Jerry, hi. Yeah, hi. Uh, I, I keep thinking that this subject is, is very interesting and very important that, um, book banning and or, or compulsion, as one listener talked about, are, are very important. Uh, and it's related to other issues. Uh, the other issue I want to mention is health teachers. Uh, we have bo books in the, in the school library. We also have health teachers. And these teachers are walking a very careful tightrope. They have to be very careful about what they say they have to be very careful about how they react to certain students' comments. Uh, they are, you know, really um, worried. I gotcha. Jerry, thanks for the call. Louise, I know you mostly focus on the library side of things. Do you share Jerry's concern about, uh, I guess, a chilling effect on, on what teachers can say if they're teaching health or uh, American politics or, or you name it? 
I absolutely do. And health is an important one. I know the when I first began my library career, the person that I worked under hid the only book on human development in the library when there were so many kids who really needed that book. Uh, they'd had no idea what was going on in their own bodies and they needed it. Um, so, <laughs> but I wasn't in charge and so I had to fight for that one. But I agree that there, it's very um, concerning that people have to be so careful and they have to be careful about things they shouldn't have to be careful about. I mean, we should be able to talk about our history. We should be able to talk about people's identities. We should be able to talk about health and, and so on. So I'm very concerned that, that we are completely altering how people learn in a negative way. Thanks for that call. And Louise, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. That's Louise Robbins, Emeritus Professor of Library and Information Studies at UW-Madison and author of the book, The Dismissal of Miss Ruth Brown, Civil Rights, Censorship, and the American Library. She joined us to talk about President Biden's plan to name a point person in the Education Department to address the rise in book bans in school libraries and other libraries over the last couple of years. Coming up after the news, it's this week's edition of Food Friday. We'll find out how to pick the perfect skillet for our cooking needs. You can get things started right now. Do you have a skillet that, uh, you know, you'll guard it with your life? Something that you've really relied on in the kitchen? Or do you have a question? If you're about to go shopping, email ideas at WPR.org or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. A solid skillet is a staple in any home cook's toolkit, but with hundreds of combinations of materials, coatings, and features, it's hard to know what kind to keep in your kitchen. It's Food Friday, and our next guest has put those skillets to the test. She'll tell us how to choose the best frying pans for our cooking needs and how to properly use and care for them. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. What's your go-to skillet to cook with? What do you like about it? Have you bought pans that turned out to be duds? What questions do you have for our skillet expert? Call in now at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You could also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org. Lisa McManus is an executive editor for America's Test Kitchen Reviews. She also co-hosts the popular ATK YouTube series called Gearheads. Lisa, welcome to Central Time. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Now, you are a gear person uh, for cooking. Could you talk us through the kind of uh, tests you put skillets through to, to review them? Well, when we test skillets or anything else at America's Test Kitchen, 
We buy them at retail, just like everybody else. We look at what's available. We bring them into the kitchen and we use them in ways that we would typically use that piece of equipment. So if it's skillets, we might fry eggs or sear steaks or cook some vegetables. We may put it in the oven because sometimes you'll make something like a shepherd's pie and want to brown the top or toast up some breadcrumbs on top of some mac and cheese. So we'll do that. We'll also try to abuse it to see if we can <laughs> find out how durable it's going to be in your kitchen over time. What are some of the most common mistakes we might make when buying new frying pans? And mistakes, I've made a few in this category, I got to say. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I think the biggest thing I always think about with a skillet is the cooking surface that's going to be available to you. Um, skillets are sold by their size, and that's measured from rim to rim. So they'll sell like a 12-inch skillet, which is kind of our standard go-to skillet for you know, families of four, you know, four to six servings of cooking, um, even two servings in some cases. It's a good size to have a slightly bigger pan, not those little tiny ones you often see. But a 12-inch skillet is measured rim to rim. The way the sides slope in, if they're very steep mm. and sloped and cupped like a bowl, you can end up with less than eight inches of flat cooking surface on the bottom. And that's not good in a skillet. You don't want that. You don't want a wok shape in your skillet. You want a flat, broad cooking surface because what's going to make a skillet perform well is to make sure the food isn't crowded. And you need some nice flat surface to get good and hot, to sear, and to make sure food is going to brown instead of steam. Yeah, one of my common pratfalls with pans is when they don't heat evenly. So I'm burning over on this side and I'm not, you know, still a rare on the other side. How can we make sure we get a pan that's going to heat evenly across the surface? A lot of that comes down to two things. One is you really do need to preheat your pan. Well, I'm Give not very patient, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, really within four minutes, your pan will be good and warm. You're going to put it on say medium heat for four minutes. Don't do that if it's a nonstick pan. Uh, without having some oil in there. You never want to heat a nonstick pan empty. You want to put a little bit of oil in there, heat it for about four minutes, let it soak all the way through the pan and spread, and then you're not going to get those hot spots. The other thing you can do is make sure that the pan you're buying has a material that it's made up of that is going to conduct heat and spread it evenly through the pan. So the pan can help you or it can get in your way. Talking to Lisa McManus with America's Test Kitchen. She is helping us choose our kitchen skillets. You can join in with your favorites, your experiences for better or worse, your questions for our guest at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Matt is with us in Madison. Matt, hi. Hey. What did you want to tell us about, Matt? Yeah, so uh, about a year ago, I picked up like an antique Griswold cast iron skillet, and I really liked using it. I use it for hamburgers, chicken breast, uh, or just to kind of saute up some vegetables, but I've just had a really hard time trying to get seasoning to stick on it. It's like I'll do some oven treatments. Uh, I think I have a really nice layer built up, and then like once I go to like sear some chicken on it or something, I notice it'll kind of flake off where, where I was... Uh, getting the food on there. So I was wondering if, has a, if the guest has any tips for a really stubborn skillet when it comes to kind of keeping that seasoning on. Matt, thanks for the call. Seasoning that cast iron skillet, Lisa, it's not working out for Matt. Yeah, I think what's what that sounds a lot like to me is that the seasoning is too thick. 
that you're trying to put too heavy a coat of oil. What seasoning is, is essentially, if you had bare cast iron, it would look silver and it would be very prone to rusting because exposure to air and moisture will make it rust. Seasoning is really baking on some oil, a very, very thin coat, and that makes the oil polymerize, it turn into a coating, it links and bonds together with itself and with the, me with the metal of the pan and makes a nonstick coating that's natural. The big trick though is thin. You want a really thin coat. So I've seen a lot of systems where, well, suggestions from people to put thick coats of oil on and bake it for an hour in the oven. I did that once, did it six times in the oven for six hours over days. <laughs> and then the first thing I cooked, it came off. It's too thick. The best thing to do is just to put the lightest, tiniest couple of drops of oil on that pan when you're done cooking with it. Don't use soap and scrub the heck out of it. Just, you know, scrub it down a little bit with just salt and some oil. Rinse that out, dry it, put it on the stove, get it nice and warm, and then put really just a couple of drops of oil and get a paper towel, rub that all in. If it looks like it's all gone, that's what you're looking for. It's not gone. It's very thin. And the heat on the, of the pan, you're going to keep it on that low to medium heat. And you're going to just let it cure on there, basically. And that is what's going to give you good seasoning. And you're just going to lay a little bit on each time as you use it. You don't have to do a lot of elaborate seasoning. I, I would only do that the first time I got a pan is really, you know, maybe if it was an old antique pan. If it's a new pan, uh, a lot of pans like our Best Buy from Lodge. It's black already when you get it. They pre-season it, they heat it up, they spray it with oil, they bake it on, and they've, they've really got this down to a science. This is all they do all day long. So that pan's ready to go when you get it. And then you just maintain it. When you're done cooking, take the food out, rinse it, dry it, wipe the tiniest drop of oil in all over the interior and the exterior if it looks like it needs it. Put it back on that burner, warm it fully through. And it should look matte and uh, not shiny, shouldn't be sticky. And that means you're going to get a nice thin coat of seasoning that's really going to release food. Matt, hope that helps. Thanks a lot for calling in. Lisa, let's turn to those non-stick pans you mentioned. Uh, that's lots of them. That covers a lot of ground. What kind of things are we looking for in non-stick? Well, you know, one thing that you really need to know is not all non-stick is made the same way. Mm -hmm. Basically, there's a whole bunch of different layers of quality. So there's some really basic cheap ones. It's like when you're painting a room. If you put one layer of paint on, you might see the old color through, but you know, it's thin. It doesn't look good. You put on, you let that fully dry. You add another coat. Nonstick is made that way. They get a, a pan and they'll put down one layer and cure it on, put down another layer and cure it on. Kind of like that seasoning we were talking about. And if it's a really high quality nonstick, it's going to have multiple layers and it's going to be a little bit more durable than a cheap pan. Um, so I think like one thing I would make sure is it's got a good durable nonstick coating. And we've tested a bunch of them. We do this test where we make fried eggs one after another with no fat in the pan, heat it to a very specific temperature, drop the fried egg. And then after a certain amount of time, take it out and we don't use any fat. And once the egg starts to stick, we know that we've already worn out that nonstick coating. Our favorite pan, which is right now it's by OXO, um, 
it released up to 75 eggs with no sticking. Wow. And then we cook a bunch of other stuff in it and we do that test again. A lot of pans don't make it through that second round. Some of them don't make it through the first round. So there's a real difference in the quality of the nonstick coating. And you want one that's going to hold up as long as possible. Because as we all know, nonstick coatings are not eternal. They're not like cast iron pans where you can renew that surface forever. It's going to go in one direction, which is downhill. And you just want more of a long, gradual slope to that landfill <laughs> as long as you can. <laughs> so look for a good one. And a big point you make uh, in your videos and your writing, Lisa, is these coated uh, pans are not made to be cooked at super high heats. Can you talk about that? Right. Um, there's two kinds of nonstick coatings on the market right now. One is PTFE, which is polytetrafluoroethylene, and that is a chemical coating. Um, it's the best nonstick out there. Uh, it really sticks. It sticks itself to the pan and doesn't stick to any food. But at 500 at about 500 degrees, it can start off gassing, and so you'll see things where they say, "Don't keep your pet birds in the kitchen." etc. That's not great for you either. If you've ever heard of the story of the canary in the coal mine, you know that they used to bring canaries into the coal mine because if the canary, you know, passed out, they knew they had a little bit more time to get out of there. It was a, it was not a good sign. So, you know, don't get them over 500 degrees if you can help it. And that's kind of easy to do if you've cranked the heat to high, which is also why we always say don't preheat your nonstick pan without oil in it. Most oil will smoke at around 400 degrees. And so it will be smoking and you'll get a sign to get that thing off the heat long before it's dangerous to you. Let's go back. The to our... other option oh, is ceramic, ahead. actually. The other kind of coating is ceramic and that has a higher heat um, tolerance as far as it doesn't really have a ceiling. Ceramic can be very, very hot. The only problem is it's not as durable for as long as PTFE coatings. It tends to get cracks in it it's a little brittle. Once those cracks happen, it starts to stick and then it just kind of perpetuates. It goes downhill a lot faster, but you don't have to worry about the off-gassing. Let's go back to our callers. Linda is with us in Middleton. Linda, hi. Hi. I would like to recommend a pan I got from uh, Wisconsin Cutlery on University Avenue, and it is called a Cairo Sarah. It's a nonstick pan, and I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly. How do you spell the, the name? K-Y-O-C-E-R-A. Kyocera. Okay, and what do you like about it, Linda? Uh, things don't stick, and it's super easy to clean. All right, thanks. Yeah, that's actually our Best Buy ceramic pan. We tested a full lineup of ceramic nonstick pans, and um, our winner is by Green Pan, the Valencia, and our Best Buy is that pan. Oh, well done, Linda. Thanks a lot. Uh, good luck. I uh, hope uh, long life to that pan. It's Food Friday. We're talking to kitchen product reviewer Lisa McManus about skillets, what to buy, what to watch for, how to make the best use of them. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you use mostly nonstick pans, what do you like about them? If you had a hard time using or caring for your uh, cookware at all, if you're a cast iron fan, what's your secret? What's your strategy for keeping it as nonstick as possible? Call in at 800-642-1234 with your experiences, your questions. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. 
We're picking up our Food Friday talk with kitchen equipment reviewer Lisa McManus from America's Test Kitchen. We're talking about skillets, what to buy, when to use them, how to use them, how to care for them. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a favorite must-have pan in your collection? Is there something you'd want to recommend to someone else? Or do you need some advice from our guest? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls. Claire is calling from on the road right now. Claire, hi. What did you want to bring up? Are you there, Claire? I think Claire's not hearing us. Claire wanted, I got a note to, to ask, oh, about PFAS chemicals in nonstick pans. This is a big issue here in Wisconsin, Lisa, these PFAS chemicals in our waterways. Is that something you've been tracking as you look at nonstick pans? Yes, a lot of, um, yeah, it's a lot of concern with nonstick in that regard because it's something that comes out during manufacturing. It's not in your pan when you're using it, but during manufacturing, it gets into the runoff you know, that gets into the waterways, as I understand it. Um, you know, one of the options that we like to offer instead of nonstick, it's so easy to use. You know, we love that it's so easy. It releases food and, you know, it's easy to lift. It's lightweight compared to cast iron. But we really love to say, you know, try a carbon steel pan. Carbon steel has some great nonstick ability. It's natural nonstick. It's like cast iron in that you season it and you take care of it. And it gives you this beautiful release, but it's more lightweight than cast iron. So it's easier to handle for people who can't really hoist that giant cast iron pan around. Claire, thanks for calling a, in. Sorry we lost option. that sorry we lost that connection with you. Uh Pat joins us now in Green Bay. Pat, hi. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. You're excited about a pan, Pat. I can tell. <laughs> no, I'm excited. It's Friday and I'm done with work. <laughs> All right. It's been a week of a week of Mondays. <laughs> What did you want to tell us about? um, My favorite is my 10-inch Lodge cast iron skillet. Um, If I could find an older cast iron skillet than mine, I would love it even more. But I've been using that skillet for um, frying all sorts of different types of meats, uh, steaks, the bacon, and everything else in between. But my absolute favorite use for it is making cornbread. That is my absolute favorite. Awesome. Pat, thanks a lot for sharing that with us. And that, yeah, Lisa, the one beauty about uh, thing about cast iron skillets is they transfer really well into the oven, or I've used them uh, on the grill as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one way I tested the cast iron skillets that we have in our latest review is I baked cornbread in each and every one of them. And I have to agree, it makes the best cornbread. Pat, thanks a lot for that. And and you talk to a lot of people about pans and skillets, Lisa. My read is that if somebody's excited about a particular pan, it's going to be cast iron. That that brings out the enthusiasm in some people, it seems like. Absolutely. I mean, it's great. You know, people talk about vintage cast iron. Some of those are gorgeous pans, and it's so much fun to, you know, look for them in yard sales and get a great deal on them because people find them all rusty and think they're ruined and they're not. You just scrub that rust off and oil it and heat it, and it's really ready to go again. And you really can't destroy those pans. And you could drive over them with a truck. They'd probably <laughs> still be fine. <laughs> Pat, thanks what a lot. can you say, you know, of, of kitchenware that you can buy something like that and 100 years later it's still going strong, right? <laughs> 
Thanks a lot, Pat, for calling in. Uh, Deborah is with us now in Elkhorn. Deborah, hi. Are you there, Deborah? Hmm. Okay, Deborah wants some. Oh, okay, Dutch oven recommendations. The one she has is uh, coated on the inside, discolored, hard to clean. Uh, Lisa, I, I just got a Dutch oven. My wife got me one for Christmas. I didn't know I needed it. I love it. I'm using it so much. Any Dutch oven recommendations? Oh, yeah, definitely. We love Dutch ovens in the test kitchen. We use them for so many things. You know, we we fry in them. They're great for making fried chicken or French fries because they have their own splatter wall on the sides. Um, we bake bread in them. They make the most amazing bread. Um, and obviously soups and stews. Um, so many ways that we use those things. But I would say if you are looking for a Dutch oven, our favorite has been Le Creuset for so many years. <clears throat> And then our best buy would be one from Cuisinart that's very similar. They both have that broad cooking surface I was talking about with skillets, very important. You can brown beef in fewer batches if you're making a stew, and there's less chance that anything is going to burn because you're not doing multiple batches. You may be able to get through all the beef that you're making in maybe two batches instead of four. And then light-colored interior. And that gets to that question of it being stained. We like this cream colored interior because you can really see in that pan and you can judge the browning and you can tell if things are getting burned. There are some Dutch ovens that have a black interior. It's harder to judge if you're burning that fond, those blackened bits or browned bits at the bottom that really create a lot of the flavor in that soup or stew. So a light colored pan on the interior is what we look for, but they can discolor. And you really shouldn't worry too much about that. It's fine. It means you're using your pan. If it gets too, too dark, you can do one part of bleach to two parts of water, let it soak overnight and rinse that out really well. And it will lighten up quite a bit, if not look good as new. Thanks for that call. Time for one more caller. Linda is with us in Milwaukee. Linda, hi. Hi. Um, I wanted to say uh, the fellow that called in with the Griswold, I think he's just got to slow down with that with that fry pan. Those are the best old cast iron fry pans, and um, let it heat up on the burner first, low before he puts the food in. And you can do uh, eggs over easy. Stay everything. Just start it out. Let it heat up completely first, and and then when it comes to washing it. Just pour hot water in it and let it sit, and then take a little scrubbier uh, a cloth and and wash it out and rinse it with hot water and let it dry. Don't add any soap, and it's a wonderful thing. Linda, thanks a lot for that call. Oh yeah, at least I meant to ask. You mentioned cleaning without soap. Soap ruins our seasoning on cast iron skillets. Is that right? Um. Here's the thing. It won't ruin it if it's well-established seasoning. If it's new, if it's newly established seasoning, you can kind of take a step back in the seasoning. It will break up the oil instead of, you know, letting it polymerize on the surface. So you don't want to remove the oil. You can actually just take the food out, rinse it with hot water, as the caller just said. She gave perfect advice. Um, and then pat it dry, put it back on the stove, let it get nice and warm again. Not super ripping hot, just fully warm and the tiniest drops of oil, rub that in there. If you're worrying about old oil or old food, that is going to heat up and, and it's not going to be 
unsanitary. It's not, you're not baking old food on there. You're, you maybe have traces of the oil, but that will polymerize and become the coating of the pan. It's not unsanitary. So you don't need the, the soap. If you use a little bit of it, once the pan is well seasoned, it's not going to really hurt, but you really don't need to. Linda, thanks a lot for that call. And Lisa, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. It was so much fun. That's Lisa McManus, executive editor for America's Test Kitchen Reviews. She joined us on Food Friday for a look at skillets. You can see more of her work in the popular America's Test Kitchen YouTube series called Gearheads. And you can keep sharing your Pots and Pans favorites over on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Let us know if you found an amazing old cast iron skillet, maybe at a garage sale somewhere that you rely on all the time. Let us know on the Ideas Network Facebook page, or you can email ideas at WPR.org. Coming up Monday on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, the nation marks Juneteenth commemorating key moments in the end of slavery here in the United States. Join Kate and her guests for some perspective on that holiday and what it means in 2023 and join in with your thoughts. That's coming up Monday morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. Have you ever been in an event, a party, neighborhood gathering, whatever, and there was a, you know, a bouncy house or bouncy castle and you thought, Why do the kids get to have all the fun in there? Well, if so, turns out you're not alone. The Wall Street Journal reports there's been a growing trend of bouncy house rentals for grown-ups. Multiple companies around the country offer bouncy house experiences designed for adults, sometimes paired with a DJ and or food truck. And yes, drinking is often involved. They quote a Milwaukee finance writer who's a frequent guest here on the Ideas Network who actually booked a bouncy house for her wedding reception. I was kind of down on the idea to begin with, but I'm not a big fan of weddings and receptions as a genre. So yeah, anything to shake that up, I am all for it. A consistent message from adult party goers who have tried the bouncy house. You're not five years old anymore. Be careful in there to avoid injuries. Can we get a bouncy house in our WPR budget? I'm guessing probably, yeah. This is Central Time on the Ideas Network. <laughs> 